And now, the circle of the earth. Laredo, Texas, March 1915. Chapter 1. Later, when the necessity for accountability becomes unavoidable, a commission of sorts will be formed, and polished men will sit at polished benches and ask polished questions for reasons that have little to do with the pursuit of truth. It will emerge from these hearings, with much reluctance, that Emilio Sanchez was first observed on horseback in Brooks County at mid-morning on Tuesday, March 23rd, riding northward across the flat, dry scrubland, pack mule in tow. It is a petroleum geologist named Dennison who sees him, a mile across the section he is charting, and he feels faintly unsettled at the interruption of his assumption of solitude. But the sight arouses enough curiosity that he pulls his field glasses from his saddlebag and watches for a few moments as the distant figure moves across his field of vision and then drops from sight into an arroyo. Dennison puts his glasses away and finishes his readings. By the middle of the afternoon, he has made the three-hour horseback ride northeast back into Falfurius, the Brooks County seat. He spends the rest of the day in his rented office, charting his findings for his next report to the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey. He thinks no more of the figure at all until dinner that evening at his boarding house where, during a lull in the conversation, he mentions casually to the others at the table what he has seen. It surprises him when Chantry, a Brooks County deputy sheriff who has a room down the hall, takes an active interest. Mexican, Chantry asks. How do you know? Sombrero, Dennison answers. Posture, I don't know. You just sense it. And you're certain there was only the one? Dennison considers his reply. The lawman has always seemed distant to him, even arrogant, but it seems that Chantry's interest is coupled with a vague approval of some sort. The one's all I saw for sure, Dennison says, but now he hesitates for a moment and then adds the five words that will make everything go so terribly wrong. There could have been more. Chantry digests this for a spell, while the dinner conversation moves on to other things. After dessert, Dennison moves to the parlor and settles in for his evening hour with the San Antonio newspaper, unaware, for now, that his casual desire to impress a man he does not like will result in the death of a man he does not know. Chantry ponders his options for a few moments and then walks three blocks to the county sheriff's office on the first floor of the new county courthouse. It is a brisk evening and a chill is arriving with the darkness. He finds his boss, a taciturn man named Burgess, filling out the weekly meal requisitions for the county jail. Chantry waits for Burgess to look up, but the only recognition he receives is a terse, What? Burgess's gruffness makes Chantry suddenly unsure of his desire to raise this issue, but he is committed now and forges ahead. Fellow at dinner said he saw some greasers on horseback moving north. The sheriff's gaze rises from the form. When and how many? Couldn't say how many. More than one horse. Pack horses, too. This morning, down near Balearte Creek. Burgess considers this. Probably nothing, he finally says. The only reason I mention it is that it seems like they might be headed to San Diego. Chantry's statement of the obvious irritates Burgess, 
but he's damned if he will let Chantry see that. All right, he says, and he returns his attention to the requisitions. Chantry waits for a moment and then returns to his boarding house, unaware, for now, that his casual desire to impress a man he does not like will result in the death of a man he does not know. And so it goes. Burgess completes the requisitions and puts them to one side and retrieves from his desk the communication from the governor's office that has arrived by special courier the week before. He rereads it with careful attention. After a routine arrest in McAllen in early January, a manifesto had been found in the pocket of a Mexican national, calling for a general uprising against the Anglo population of South Texas and the summary execution of all white males over the age of 16. This document was supposedly drafted in San Diego, the county seat of Duval County, less than 50 miles north of Falfurius. Burgess has never reckoned it credible. Archibald Parr controlled Duval County, and nothing like that would have gotten past him. To Burgess, it was most likely a bunch of drunken Mexicans leading each other on. The date for the uprising is passed without incident, but folks are nervous, and the governor is emphatic that the violence occurring south of the Rio Grande must not be allowed to spill northward into South Texas. Burgess returns the paper to his desk drawer and leans back in his chair, lacing his fingers behind his neck, and deliberates. He has a dilemma. He knows that this is probably nothing, and he understands how much commotion there will be when he raises the alarm. But he has just won a close re-election the previous November. If he ignores this, and it turns out to be something consequential, his career will be over. Burgess lifts the earpiece from the telephone on his desk, thinks for a moment, and then replaces it in its cradle. Lydia, the night switchboard operator, will almost certainly eavesdrop on any conversation and it will be all over town within minutes. His instinct also tells him that this communication should be formally on the record. After a moment, he stands up, reaches for his hat, and walks across the street to the telegraph office. In the years to come, with the hindsight of known consequence, Burgess will often relive this moment, standing in the Western Union office, the oversized clock on the back wall the pad of blank sheets at the counter where he stands, pencil in hand, as he composes the text of the telegram. The darkness outside, unseen in the large reflective window. And the sleepy indifference of the night operator, waiting patiently for the message to be torn off the pad and handed to him. Burgess will imagine himself not leaving his office. He will imagine himself apologizing to the clerk and turning around and leaving the office, telegram unwritten and unsent. He will imagine himself sending the telegram and then almost immediately sending a second telegram canceling the meaning of the first one. He will relive every opportunity he had not to send a communication he felt to be spurious and he will endure some measure of regret for his part in the result for the rest of his days. The telegram is sent to Henry Hutchings, the Texas State Adjutant General who heads the Texas Rangers. Hutchings reads it and considers a prudent course of action. This is all but guaranteed to be of no importance, but he has only recently been appointed by Governor Ferguson, who has just won a close election the previous November. If he ignores this, and it turns out to be something consequential, his career will be over. And so it goes. Company A is headed by Captain Sanders in Del Rio, 
who could not effectively coordinate anything from that distance. Captain Fox and his Company B, based in Valentine, is understaffed. Company C is here in Austin and is Captain Smith's one-man investigation unit. That leaves Captain Motes in Laredo and his Company D. Motes has a man in Alice and a man in Hebronville. Both are close to Falfurius. So he telegraphs Motes and asks him to have someone look into it. He knows Motes and does not fully trust him, so he frames the text of the telegram with great care. It is now 9.45 on Tuesday night. Render Motes is in his study at home when his wife informs him that a messenger is asking for him. He walks down the white hallway to the front vestibule, where he encounters an earnest young man with a telegram in his hand. Motes tips him and moves under the overhead light and unfolds the yellow page. His wife watches him read it and sees a familiar, furtive pleasure pass over his face. It is a look that she has seen many times before. It is a look that troubles her thoughts. It is a look that disquiets her sleep. It is a look that she has come to loathe. What is it? she asks. Nothing, Moat says. He returns to his den and shuts the door. Motes makes a single telephone call, and 90 minutes later, he is sitting with his company sergeant, Horace Miller, in his mannered and leather district office. Its walls are covered with impressive maps, framed prints, and the elegantly mounted heads of elk and buffalo. A large pool table occupies one-fourth of the floor. It is a man's room. Motes has devoted much time and personal expense to having it present a carefully crafted impression of himself. They both have a glass of whiskey in their hands, poured by Motes personally. For Miller, it is either way too late or way too early to be imbibing, but he says nothing and dutifully sips. I'm sorry to call you in on short notice like this, Motes is saying. He hands Miller the telegram and regards him as he reads it. He watches Miller's face change from curious to perplexed. Motes has the same questions in his mind that he expects Miller to raise, but Motes also has something that Miller does not, the ability to recognize a political advantage when it lands in his lap. This is very vague, Miller says. I think there's something to it, Motes responds. If Hutchins thought it was vague, it would have never been sent. Motes swivels in his chair and turns to a large map of Texas mounted on the wall behind his desk. There is a pull cue leaning against the wall under the map, and Motes reaches for it. Miller cannot help but note that the cue is a prop, placed there before the curtain rose on this particular act of the drama. Everything Motes does is staged and calculated. Mexican nationals near Falfurius, going north on horseback. Motes taps the map with the pool cue. This position makes no sense unless they are trying to avoid being seen. How many are there? Miller asks. Motes shrugs. You read the telegram. It doesn't say. This is too vague, Miller repeats, looking back down at the paper. The direction they're heading is ambiguous at best. The direction they're heading is north, towards San Diego. I shouldn't have to remind you what that might imply. Can you think of any good reason why a contingent of Mexicans would be moving on horseback with pack animals through that godforsaken country? Well, yes, sir, I can, Miller says. Any number of perfectly legitimate reasons. Vaquero's looking for work, or going home from somewhere else. Good Lord, they could be anybody. 
Sergeant, we are not here to debate this. Moat's anger is palpable. South Texas is a powder keg. Laredo itself is 80% Mexican, and the revolution starts halfway across that bridge over there. Moats points vaguely to the west with a dismissive gesture. These bastards want to take everything we've worked so hard for, parasites. What are you proposing we do? Miller asks. Moats leans back in his chair and regards Miller with an odd, detached intensity. I'm not proposing anything. I'm telling you what we're going to do. You and your men will all be taking the 515 tomorrow morning to Corpus Christi. Parsons will have an extra stock car coupled on for our use. He rises to his feet and turns again to the map and points to the hatched line designating the Texas-Mexican Railroad. Leave Hardesty for coverage here. You and Asher and Teeter will meet Burnett and Onspock at Hebronville. And then we do what? Miller is genuinely perplexed. Head due east to cover Duval County south of the rail line. Moats taps the map. Go as far as the Jim Wells County line and then head back. You should intersect either these men or their tracks. And if we do? Assess the situation. If you don't find anything, head to San Diego on Friday afternoon and return here. Miller pulls a watch from his vest pocket and regards it. It is 11.30, he says. Animals we can get ready. What about supplies? Moats is prepared. Jackman will open up for an hour at four o'clock. Put everything on account. You'll need food and tack for three or four days. Make sure you have any necessary ordnance. Have the horses and gear and pack mules and all supplies ready on the siding by 4.45. Remember to take horses for Burnett and Onspock. All they need to do is be in Hebronville at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. I don't want them to have any excuse not to be there. I will want to address the three of you before you pull out. Moat stands up. That's all. That's not all, sir. Miller says as genially as he can. I'd rather take Hardesty and leave Asher. No, Moat shakes his head emphatically. I don't understand your dislike of Asher. I don't dislike him. He's just dead weight. It is time for him to either fish or cut bait. Miller is silent for a moment, and Moats interprets this as a thoughtful reflection of the order. It is no such thing. Miller is angry and he's holding himself in reserve until his emotions subside. He nods and tries another approach. Hardesty would be better able to help us with this particular job. That would be true no matter what the job was. I know that Asher's ailing, and I know that he has been a ranger for a long time. Moats walks around the desk, and Miller reflexively rises from his chair. But enough is enough. If this exercise is too strenuous for him, and it will be, I will have the justification I need to send him on his way. Really, Horace, it's in everyone's best interest, including his. The ranger's budget and roster is the lowest it has ever been. We need good, productive, dependable men. Asher's long past his prime. Miller finally surrenders on this issue and raises a second point of concern. I would prefer not to use Burnett, he says. We have enough men without him. No. Moats says again, and now Miller can see that this request visibly irritates Moats, where the first one did not. Teeter is brand spanking new, Miller says, just for the record. Teeter has just been sworn in less than two weeks ago and is untested. Let's see what he's made of, Moats says. And that is all. Miller returns home in the midnight cold to find Leona, his wife, waiting for him 
sitting at the dining table. She goes into the kitchen and returns with two cups of coffee. How long? She asks. Three or four days. Complete and utter wasted time and resources. I don't see why we can't just have Burnett or Onspock do this. Miller telephones Onspock and Alice and asks him to get word to Burnett, who is already in Hebronville, that they both need to be at the depot at Hebronville at nine o'clock the next morning. He then contacts Hardesty and informs him that he is being held in reserve to see that Webb County is competently covered while the rest of its Laredo Rangers are away. Hardesty takes it stoically, and Miller asks him to have Asher and Teeter at Jackman's supply store by four o'clock. By three o'clock, Hardesty is able to get Teeter on the telephone. But because Asher has no telephone, he sends Teeter over to rouse him from his room at the Sirocco Hotel. So, at 3.25 on Wednesday morning, Teeter crosses Jarvis Plaza to the hotel and enters through the large front doors to the long oak counter, where a portly old man reads a newspaper. Asher's room? Teeter says. The clerk motions to a wide staircase on the right. Top floor. 617. Teeter sees no elevator, so he moves to the stairs and begins the climb with a young man's energy. The second and third floors are beautifully carpeted and well lit. These are the guest floors. Four and five are darker, and the carpeting is much more worn, and Teeter realizes that these are the residence floors. At six, the carpeting is all but gone, and there is a single dim bulb in the hallway. Teeter realizes from the sheet-covered furniture lining one wall of the corridor that this floor is used mostly for storage. Half of the rooms have no numbers, but at the end of the hallway, he finds Asher's room and knocks gently. From inside, he hears the faint sound of moving bed springs, a momentary silence, and then the striking of a match. A soft light begins to glow beneath the door. The bed springs quietly turn again, giving up some small weight, and quick, light footsteps approach the door which then begins to open to the inside until stopped by the length of the latch chain. A woman's face, lit dimly by the lamp held in her raised left hand, fills the gap between the door and the frame, and Teeter recognizes her at once, even in the half-light. With his surprise, a memory surfaces, warm and pleasant, and an image comes to his mind, unbidden but welcome and emotionally sensual. He remembers her brushing her long graying hair as they exchanged pre-embraced pleasantries. Teeter sees no recognition in her face. Yes, she says. I have a message from Mr. Asher, from Sergeant Miller. We're being called into the field. He needs us at Jackman's to get supplies in 30 minutes, and then to the livery stable, and then to the depot. Train, then horseback. Three or four days, Miller says. As the woman quietly digests this, Teeter says, We've met before. No, the woman says, too quickly. She seems startled. Yes, Odessa, a couple years ago. No, she says again and steps back. Thank you. The door closes, and Teeter is alone again in the dark hallway. He goes back downstairs. He needs to reassure Hardesty that Asher has been informed. Inside the room, Beulah Asher steps over to the large table by the bay window overlooking the plaza, puts down the lamp, and leans on the table's edge, elbows locked and head down, trying to regain her composure. She's been dreading this moment for a long while, and the suddenness of its arrival has left her drained. She could easily surrender to a flood of tears, but there's no time and no point. 
She moves across the room to the bed and looks down at her husband. She does not want to rouse him. His sleep is narcotic deep, head thrown back, raspy rattle breathing with a thick pinkish drool covering the pillow beneath his open mouth. Her gaze moves to the laudanum bottle on the table beside the bed, and she sees that he's had to take some during the night to sleep. She's begun to worry that he has started taking more than the pain really requires. Bueller readies herself and then reaches out and touches his shoulder, gently at first, and then more firmly when there's no response. Thomas, she says. Thomas, you need to wake up. His unfocused eyes open and finally settle on hers as he climbs up from his sulfurous dreams. Beulah sees understanding come over his face, and he slowly works his way into a sitting position on the side of the bed, with her arm around his shoulders for support. His own hands are down deep between his knees. He is trembling in the cold room. What time is it? He asks. Half past three. Man was just here. Says Miller sent him. You're being called up, mounted, three or four days. What man? Asher is slowly digesting this. Young, just a kid, maybe 25. Tater, Asher says. He's new. He gets wearily to his feet and reaches for his pants, draped over the end of the bed. But his bladder kicks in, and he moves unsteadily to the door and down the hallway to the bathroom. As he urinates, the pain begins in his lower back, concurrent with that undefinable need for some laudanum. His awakening mind begins to sense the implications. He finishes and moves back down the corridor to his room and sits down at the table. Beulah is still sitting on his side of the bed, facing the far wall, her hands in her lap. I don't know what to do, he says. Beulah sits for a moment, and then she stands and picks up the laudanum bottle from the side of the bed and walks over to the table. She puts it on top of the battered Bible that Asher reads from during his prayer time, next to the copy of Middlemarch that she reveres enough to begin rereading every time she finishes it. She sits down across the table from him. Asher takes a sip of the laudanum and waits for the familiar glow to begin to take hold. There's no way you can sit a horse for three days, Beulah says. Asher holds up the bottle of laudanum. That doesn't help a thing, Beulah says sharply. It won't even begin to get you through this. Asher shrugs. I got nothing to lose by trying. Beulah is quiet at this, and now Asher realizes that something else is happening here. What's wrong? He recognized me, Beulah says flatly, from Odessa. Teeter? Asher considers this. Do you remember him? Beulah is silent. If she says yes, it means that Teeter was memorable. If she says no, it will remind Asher that there were so many men. Either answer will hurt Asher, and this is a notion that distresses her. Asher tries to remember if this is how he imagined he would feel when this moment came, and he is surprised to find that he is vexed and embarrassed. He is not angry with Beulah. He had promised himself repeatedly that he would not be. He had it in his mind that he was going to be the model of patient, forgiving rectitude. But now that the moment has actually arrived, he finds himself ill-equipped to know what to do or say, to Beulah or anyone else. He changes the subject. Where do I go and when? Jackman's at four for supplies, depot at five with the horses. They say what it's about. No. Asher sits thinking, and there's no good option. How much we got saved? He asks. Two hundred and seventy dollars. 
$270, Asher says. If I do go, it will hurt, but maybe I can do it and stay on the payroll. I can't believe that Miller is asking you to do this, Beulah says. He knows how much you are hurting. It ain't Miller asking. It's Moats telling. Asher stands and moves to the bed and begins to put on his clothes, wincing all the while. Hell with him. I can do this. This is false bravado, and Asher knows it, and he knows that Beulah knows it. He dresses and packs a change of clothes and his laudanum, as well as the new unopened reserve bottle, which he wraps carefully in a red rag. As he leaves, he hesitates at the door and turns to Beulah. This don't matter, Asher says.